We will today read some verses that may be familiar to many of you. And I am believing, as you do, in the power of the Word of God. His Word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen. And it pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul, the spirit, the joints, and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Exodus chapter 2, starting there with verse 23. And it came to pass in process of time. I want you to notice in process of time. This is a timing matter. Timing matters to God. In process of time, the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. Watch. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered his covenant. He remembered his testament. It could also be a word that's used there, covenant or testament, in some places or interchangeable. He remembered his bond with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, of course, were the forefathers of those crying in bondage and groaning. Turn the page, if you need to, to chapter 3. It's interesting. We just read those three verses, and we have the cry and the groaning of the children of Israel in bondage, and God remembering. You go to chapter 3, and we're on the backside of the desert. Here we are on the backside of the desert, and God already has a man that he's been working on. And he says, he hears their cry. He says, it's time. It came to pass in the process of time. Timing with God. The people were crying and God was preparing a vessel. And so many of you know the story there in Exodus 3. There's a burning bush. Moses is tending sheep. He sees the bush burning. That in itself wasn't an odd thing. In the desert, bushes would spontaneously combust due to heat. But what he noticed about this bush is that it was burning, but it wasn't consumed. So it just kept burning, but the bush was there. And so he turned aside to see. Thank God Moses still had a heart for the supernatural. He turned aside to see, and of course, the Lord began to speak to him from the burning bush and let him know the place where he was standing was holy ground. Take off your shoes, and we'll pick up in verse 6. Moreover, he said, the Lord, to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, hear the words of the Lord to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a large land flowing milk and honey, to the place of all these different ites. Verse number 9. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore. Who's he talking to? Ah, uh, caught you. Who's the Lord talking to? Moses. Moses. See, sometimes we have to slow down when we're reading Scripture, so... You got to go, hold on, who's he talking to? So he's talking to Moses. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Well, that sounds like something I don't want to do. But he says, I will send you to Pharaoh 
that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, we read over it. I'm going to go back through them. I'm not going to reread them, but I'm going to run down a short list here. I want you to hear some of the different things in those eight verses that we just read. We hear, because they paint a picture for us of the children of Israel. They are sighing. This isn't like... Okay. This is a people that are in bondage, have been in bondage. They're wearied from being in bondage. They want change. They, but now it's just like we're getting up and it's another day in bondage. And, and they're just, this is just what it is, another day in bondage. And they're sighing by reason of their bondage. They're crying because of their bondage. Along the way, they cry out to God. Would you do something? Would you help us? God of Israel, would you? They're crying out because of their bondage. The scripture says of the Lord, he heard their groaning. So we know there's this groaning from the children of Israel because of their bondage. He saw their affliction. So not only are they in bondage, they're also afflicted. And then he says he sees their oppression. He heard their cry because of their oppression. Do you got a picture of this people? These are people in bondage. These are people that are afflicted. These are people that are oppressed. They are weary and they want a way out and they don't see a way out. And they're crying and they're wanting God. And maybe, just maybe, they doubt if He even hears. Because after all, they've been in this state for generations. There is 430 Years of bondage. This isn't just mom and dad and the kids. This is mom and dad and the grandpa and the great grandpa and the great great grandpa and the great great great. This goes back generation after generation. There are 430 years. These people never knew anything but Egypt. They never knew anything but bondage. All their lifetime they had lived subjected to the bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt. All their lifetime they had lived subjected to taskmasters and living under that thumb. Oh, they heard the stories. They heard the stories about Joseph and how he had come and was prince at one time. And that's why the first 75 of them came to Egypt and they were... It was so beautiful and there was plenty and, you know, our father Jacob and his other Joseph's 11 brothers and, you know, their small families and there were 75 of them. But you need to know now there's anywhere from one and a half to two and a half million of them. You say, how do I know that? Well, the scripture is very clear. There were 600,000 men, able men. That doesn't, just, that doesn't count like the elderly. There were 600,000 men. If they had a wife and one child, you're doing the math, right? That's 1.8 million. So this is no longer 75 people. They've heard the stories. They've heard about Joseph. But they're so far removed from that now. It's just a story. Do they believe it? Sure they do, I think. They're there. But they're in bondage. There's a couple of key things I find in those verses. First, we paused and pointed out, God remembered His covenant. You know, that doesn't mean God forgot. And oh, they're crying out to me. Oh, I remember, I did say this. I guess I should, oh, I, that's right. I'm, I do that, you do that, right? 
I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and was talking about something and I was reminded of a commitment I made to somebody five and a half years ago that if I ever passed their way again, I would make it a point to come and stop by. Well, there's a possibility that sometime this year, I could thank God he reminded me of that because there's a possibility sometime this year I could pass that way. And now I've got to know if I pass that way, I got to make sure I stop. I told them. I had forgot, but I remembered. God doesn't forget. That's not what it means when it says God remembered his covenant. He's not like that. What it means is their cry stirred. It, I'm, I'm putting this in our words. This isn't an adequate explanation. But what it did is it made God say, I'm going to do what I've said I'd do. What I promised Abraham, because they're crying out, I'm going to do it. I'm responsible to my word. So he remembered his covenant. God's response to their cry was because of his love for them and because of his word to Abraham. God always acts according to his word. And so he remembered his covenant. He looked on them. He had respect to them. I find it interesting where we read in verse 10 that he lays out his plan as far as I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to reach to them. I've heard them. I'm going to, you know, I've remembered my covenant. And then when he's talking to Moses, he says to Moses, I, Lord God, I will send you. That you can bring forth my people. It sure sounded a lot more believable when he said he was going to do it. Who's this? Guy has no self-confidence. Not a leader at all. all he's, I mean, he's leading sheep, but he's, he's got no experience leading people. He tried once and he ended up killing somebody. And then he just fled the moment confrontation came. Is this really the one, Lord, that you're picking to go back there? And he was struggling 40 years ago. You're going to send him back now when they multiplied a little more. And this is the choice. You see yourself anywhere in this story. Isn't it something there are. I'm going to get ahead of myself. We better not do that. Four hundred and thirty years. Give you perspective, that's about twice as long as the United States has been a nation. That takes you back a little bit, doesn't it? That's how long they've been in bondage. You say, well, but when they first got there, they weren't in bondage. The moment they decided they were staying there, I believe the Lord said they're in bondage because Egypt was never meant to be anything than a temporary supply to preserve his people. But they became content and comfortable in Egypt. And so they became in bondage to that which they became content and comfortable with. Where do you think the God that Aaron and those people built out in the wilderness came from? Where'd they get this idea of building a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain? Think they concocted that in their heads? No, they got comfortable and content in Egypt. And they saw Egypt had gods that were made out of different stuff. But they decided we should have one too. Let's build a golden calf. They didn't get that idea from their minds. They got that from fellowship with the world, with Egypt. And so they were in bondage. Generations, 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 generations. I didn't sit down and do the math. I don't know how long a typical generation is. Most people and probably have a, a child, if they're going to do that, somewhere between 20 and 35, I think is pretty fair. If, if you, I know some have them a little later, some have them a little earlier, but... You know, if you just sort of pick a range, you multiply that out. You, you, I mean, you got at least, I'd say, 15 generations of people here. 
I, I realize some have passed on, but that's how many generations have lived in this condition. At this point, this is just life. At this point, this is just the way it is. At this point, you may cry out, but there's not real. I don't know how much hope you have that anything's ever going to change. That makes sense. I'm not trying to add into scripture, but there are real humans that we're reading about in the Bible. These are real people lived real lives. And this we can read over that like, oh, you know, one day they decided they had enough and they cried out. No, they've been living this life for generations and generations. They may have been weary and tired and worn, but I'd say most of them resigned to the fact I'm just going to die the same way my dad died. I'm going to die the same way my grandfather died. I hate Egypt. I hate this life. I don't want to be a slave, but I'm in bondage to this. I can't really change it. Let's try to make the best of it. At least we got a house to live in. Let me try to take care of my family the best I can. Such is the way it is. God is still God. But here I am just stuck in this condition. He knows where I am. And I wish he'd change. every once in a while they'd go to a place and cry out to Jehovah. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Cry. Maybe even that became ritual. But for some, it became something in their heart that said, something's got to change. I don't want to have children and have them live in bondage. I don't want my next generation to live in bondage. Something's got to change. And whatever it was that gripped the heart of that generation there, they begin to cry out. They begin to groan. And their cry and their groan came to the throne of God and God heard it. God heard it. And when God heard it, He said, I made a covenant with Abraham. I can't just let them cry out anymore. Someone touched the heart of God and He said, I'm getting ready to break bondage. For some of you this morning, you've made some determinations in your life. I'm just always going to live with this. This is just always the way it's going to be. I'm just destined to be, you know, I wish it would have. I've prayed about it a time or two, but it just hasn't changed. Or I've tried to change. And there's the problem. I've tried, but I haven't let God tell me what to do. I've tried to change, but it just won't change. Or maybe I've not obeyed what God told me to do. But here there must come, like in the children of Israel, a sighing, a groaning, a crying. And God will hear you hear, he sends this man, Moses, says, I'm going to send you. It's interesting if you read that and if we could really somehow fathom the expanse of this people. And oh, by the way, Egypt's not just some weak little nation. They have massive armies. They are power, a powerful people. They have control. How is God going to just get one and a half to two and a half million people and just deliver them? Can you imagine if you and I had to sit down and devise a plan? And the Lord says, oh, I got a plan. Let me go make a bush burn. I got to talk to somebody. He knows Egypt. He lived there before. I'll send him back. Just one man, Lord. Yeah. Uh, Lord. <laughs> Egypt. Two million people. One man, Lord? Yeah. I wish some of you would just quit disqualifying yourself from what God can do. You know, there's this idea, well, I've failed, therefore God can't use me. You really think you're that powerful? No, really. You really think you're that powerful? That your failure can dictate to God so that God no longer has the power to use you? You really believe that? Because that's what you're saying if you say, my failure, so God can't use me. Yes, he can. Moses murdered a man. Remember? All right. Exodus chapter 12. 
I'm going to read fast. Sorry for Brother Renee who's interpreting. Exodus 12, verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It wasn't January, but for us it's January. It's the beginning. That he, the Lord said, right now I'm creating a new calendar because of what I'm getting ready to do. We're starting this new. You understand, that's exactly why God did what he did. This month, for what I'm about to do in your lives, it's going to be the new beginning of months. The month may have started here before. Your year on your calendar may have started here before. But because I'm getting ready to do something so supernatural in your life, because I'm getting ready to change your life in such a magnificent way because of your cry and because of my covenant, from now on, this month will be the beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year to you. See, we read over that and we miss that. That's how significantly God felt about what he was getting ready to do. I'm getting ready to change your life so much that the rest of your life starts from this day. This is the beginning of months. Verse 3, he's talking to Moses and Aaron. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month, everybody say tenth day. In the tenth day of the month, they shall take them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Everybody say the 14th day. So they had to get the lamb, and then four days later, it would have been really neat timing if we'd have just done and taught all this yesterday, huh? Yesterday was the 14th, in case you guys were wondering why I said that. <laughs> Till the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it, kill the lamb in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and they shall strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Skip down to verse number 11. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I want you to see that verse there. I want you to see it clear. I pray God put it in our spirit. Hear what the Lord said to the children of Israel. I will smite all the firstborn, man and beast. But notice why and what he's doing against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Hear this and notice this. Again, we can pass through. I know this is sort of Bible study this morning instead of just preaching. But we need to see the word of God so that he can do it in our life. When God takes people and delivers them from bondage, he is executing judgment against the gods of this world that have held them captive. It is not just, whoa, thank goodness I'm free. No, the power of God through His ordained covenant, His way of doing it, is an execution of His judgment against the gods of this world. He said, I will execute judgment. And then He declared who He was that gave Him the authority to do so, I am the Lord. Verse 13, and the blood. What blood? The blood of the lamb that's on the doorpost and the side post. The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. 
when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be to you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Remember that. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer or will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. You see that? Notice again, the end of verse 22. None of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. You know what Moses just declared? As long as you remain under the blood, you're covered. As long as you remain under the blood, you're covered. But you step out from under the blood, the destroyer's still there. Somebody hear me. There is a deception that, well, I've had the blood of Jesus applied to my life so I can walk and live and act like I want. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, the blood can be on the house, but you can step out of it. The blood can be on the house, but you can step out of it. I'm not saying you step out and now you got to get baptized again. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is you can step out from under his covenantal covering. There is a type and a shadow given to us here in the Old Testament. You're covered as long as you stay in the house. But you step out from under the blood. Where he applied the blood, you step out from under that. You're in the street and the destroyer's coming through there. For us, it's spiritual. You step out from under the blood. This is why Paul would write in one place about those crucifying the Lord afresh. Their actions, they would step out from under the blood and then their life would come back and it was like a fresh crucifixion for the Lord. The blood, they didn't get baptized all over again. The blood is applied. You've been baptized in Jesus' name. It's good until he takes you home. You can make a mockery of it. It's not just like I got freedom to do whatever I want now. You still got to stay under the blood. There are people's lives who I know have been buried in the name of Jesus that I've prayed where I believe they've stepped out of the house, metaphorically speaking, and I've prayed, God, I know your blood's applied to their life. Quicken it to their spirit today. Remind them again today. I, I plead your blood over their life. Let them return. Let the cry of the blood of the Lord come into their ears. I, I believe in that principle. The Lord said that Abel's blood cried to him from the earth. Surely the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ could cry out to the soul that's went out from under his covering and his blood could ring in their ears. I've tell you, I've prayed that God let your blood cry out in their ears. Bring them back into your house. So we read this and we, I don't know if you caught it or not. God's miraculous plan for delivering 2 million plus or minus people is one man and the blood of lambs. Just really moves you, doesn't it? Think about that. Anybody doubt this story? I believe this happened. I believe with all of my heart, this took place. This is historical. 
Now, there isn't a one of us here that would go, that's how I would have done it too. Of course. Get some guy on the back of the desert, get him to go back begrudgingly, and then get everybody to kill a lamb and bloody their door. That's it. You understand, I'm not making light of God's plan. His ways are so far above our ways. His thoughts are so far above our thoughts. And we know that that night, I'm not reading it all for sake of time, that night, the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt, and the firstborn of every house and every cattle where blood was not on the door was killed and the Egyptians woke up in the middle of the night and every one of them found dead people in their house and a cry went up from Egypt and they woke Pharaoh and said, if you don't let them go and get them out of here, they're going to kill all of us. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. The fear of the Lord gripped the heart of the enemy. The fear of the Lord gripped the heart of the captor. The fear of the Lord came into the one that had been holding people in bondage. And they had been exercising fear over Israel. But the Lord said, oh no, I'm turning the table now. Because I have seen the blood. And where I see the blood, I recognize I'm going to execute judgment where it's not. And he turned the table and the fear of the Lord came upon the heart of Egypt. And they didn't just say, let them go. They said, we'll help you pack. Matter of fact, we got some nice gold and silver. Take it with you. We'll pay you to leave. Read it. That's exactly what happened. God in his miracle working power in one night broke 430 years of bondage. Don't tell me God doesn't pay attention to every single detail of a life. You know why? Because when that 430 years of bondage ended, it was to the day that it started. It's in the Word. He ended it 430 years to the day. I don't know the significance of that, but I'm sure there was something significant to that. And he took them out in one night because of his covenant and because he's God. Now watch. Go with me into the book of John, chapter 1 and 29. John the Baptist is in the Jordan baptizing people. He sees Jesus coming to him and he looks up and he says to him, of him. We know this. I'm going to finish before you get there. Behold, the Lamb of God. Heard that before? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Hold on, how's this possible? One man, one lamb, breaking the bondage of any and every person that ever enters into sin in the world? Yes. One lamb, one man, sent by God, God Himself, wrapped in flesh, could break the bondage of not 430 years, but thousands of years and generations of bondage of family after family after family. What does it take? I'll tell you what it takes. It takes someone saying, I'm taking the blood of the Lamb and I'm applying it to my house. Luke 22 and 8. Luke 22 and 8 tells us this. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go, this is Jesus speaking, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Yes, it's the very same Passover that we just read about hundreds of years before in Exodus. 
He told them to keep it every generation. So we know for a fact that where we're reading right now happened, excuse me, happens to be the first month of the year for the Jews. Because they're getting ready to eat of the Passover. And they've been keeping it year after year for generations. One time a year, every time. The first year, the 14th day of the first month of the year. And so we know this timing that they're getting ready to eat. They're going to sit down and they're going to remember the Lord bringing them out of Israel or out of Egypt. And they said to him, where will you that we prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you're entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him and in, into the house where he enters. And you shall say to the good man of the house, the master says to you, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, room furnished there. Make ready. Side note. This is what I was referencing following prayer yesterday. I said the Lord told him, go, you'll find a colt. That was a different time. Go, you'll find a man bearing a pitcher of water. The Lord was dealing with me about this when he said, I, I prepared a building then. I can prepare a building now. Verse 13, and they went and they found just like he said, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, notice timing. When the hour was come, timing. I'm telling somebody right now, the hour has come. If you'll receive his word, the hour has come. The hour was come. He sat down and was 12 with his 12 apostles with him. He said to them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and he gave thanks. And he broke it and he gave to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now notice, they're eating the Passover. But Jesus said something they had never heard before. Oh, they'd all ate the Passover before. But no one ever said, this is the body of the coming Messiah, or this is the blood that will be shed by the coming Messiah. They always said, this unleavened bread it's because of the unleavened bread our forefathers brought out of Egypt when they left. This blood, this fruit of the vine that you're drinking represents the blood of the lamb that was put on the doorpost. That's what they'd heard generation after generation after generation. They knew that it spoke of a coming Messiah. But they always, I mean, search it out, study Israelites, Jews that keep the Passover to this day, still leave an empty seat at their table when they celebrate Passover. They're waiting for Elias to come. The one that prepares the way. He's already come. And so Jesus declares to them this. You're not taking this bread remembering. You're taking this bread. I want you from now on. I'm changing. Passover. You're still going to keep it year after year. But you're not going to remember Israel coming out. You're going to remember a different lamb. The lamb of God. Revelation 13 and 8 calls him the lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. You know what that tells me? He knew what he was going to do before he ever framed the world because he knew what he, we would do when he made us. And he's like, I can't create something 
and just let them perish and be destroyed. I'll have to make a way if I create them to care for them and deliver them from the bondage they'll become a part of by their choices. And so therefore, when he when it came into the heart and the mind of God to frame the world, he also had the idea on the way I'm going to have to give myself. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. It was always in the heart of God. How's that possible? He doesn't live in time. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's the I am. How is it possible that a lamb and the blood of a lamb could in one night deliver two plus or mil minus million people? How is it possible a spotless lamb hung on a cross shedding blood could deliver billions of people from bondage and sin if they would simply apply the blood? I don't understand it. But more than I believe, and I fully believe Israel came out because of the blood on the door. I believe even more so because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb. But did you catch what we read there? Verse 20. The cup is the New Testament. He did not reference, he did not remember his covenant or testament with Abraham. But he said, this is a new one. But guess what? It's still the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham saying, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. When we take today of this bread and of this juice, we are identifying and recognizing and remembering the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And I'm telling you, as sure as the blood worked the day it was shed on Passover, because you understand he was crucified at Passover. Timing means everything with God. That's why this is a sacred thing that we participate in. You can do it as often as you want. In Corinthians, we find the scripture, Paul said, as oft as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Because of scripture, I'm sort of inclined to do it once a year near the beginning of the year. I feel like I know our calendar is not the Jewish calendar, but I'm probably not going to get that deep into that because we're not of the Judaism belief anymore. I feel like I have to say these things, whether for one or two or for many. If you are choosing or if you are living in bondage to anything, it's not because God's choosing that for you. He's made a way. Through the blood of the Lamb, an oppressed people, an afflicted people, a people in bondage, through the blood of a Lamb, were set free in one night. How much more the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ would deliver us from every bondage or affliction. I don't care if it was your grandpa's way and then it was your dad's way and now it's your way. I don't care if it was your mom's way and your grandma's way. I don't care how many generations you've dealt with it. Stop believing the lie and saying, well, that's why. No, maybe so if it were not for the blood. The blood breaks the yoke. 
Brother Reuben, I wanted to jump out of my suit jacket over there when you were talking about how the Lord was just dealing with you about his blood this morning. The blood of the lamb is that powerful. Hear me, the blood of the lamb is that powerful. That every bond, you, I'm, I'm not trying to convince you. I feel like the Holy Ghost wants to make sure we see and understand what took this. This is not a small little thing that happened. A destroyer came through Egypt. You think, oh, that sounds bad. Well, it sounds bad if you're a God of this world. It sounds great if you're in bondage and you want to be set free. Because the destroyer didn't come to destroy people. Yes, the firstborn of everyone that didn't have the blood was smitten. But we read it. The destroyer came to execute judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. Who are the gods of the Egyptians? The gods, the spirit world, is what was holding his people captive. The blood of the spotless lamb of God destroys the bondage, the spiritual bonds that hold men and women captive against their will. I don't care if it's addiction. I don't care if it's oppression or depression or affliction. The blood of the lamb destroys the bondage. It destroys the captor. Yes, Brother Reuben, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. You might know that song. I know you think I'm going to sing. I'm not. <laughs> but I'm going to share the words. The song says, would you be free from your burden of sin? It's asking a question. There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. I hear the beckoning cry of the Spirit of God responding to the cry of some of you who may be in your closet of prayer on your pillow at night have cried out in desperation, God, will this ever change? God, will this ever be broken? God, how will it, what will it take? And I hear the gentle but firm word of God declaring, it just takes the blood of the Lamb. The blood is still that powerful. Stop looking for some other fix-it solution. The power's in the blood. Believe in, lay hold on, let the blood be applied to your life. If it's been applied, get back in the house and purpose to stay there. Stop going out the door into the world and then coming back, going out the world. You understand when Egypt, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, they were delivered. Amen. And then, whoa, we got a problem. They end up in front of the Red Sea. Not a coincidence. It's called the Red Sea, by the way. They end up in front of the Red Sea. Oh, no. What are we going to do? What? Right, human nature kicks in. God, you just did this thing beyond anything we could ever believe in all of our lives just a few days ago. But, oh, no. They're just like us, human. Here they are at the Red Sea. What are we going to do? Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. Moses was their hero 20 minutes ago. Some of y'all that way with me sometimes. <laughs> I'm no Moses, that's for sure. The Lord parts the Red Sea. Question, could the Lord have just lifted them up over it? Of course he did. Now, he said, no, you got to go down and through the water. Why? Because what's going to happen when you go through? Is those things that held you captive, that I delivered you from, they're going to go through too. But you're going to come out of the water. They're not.
Some of you getting revelation about your baptism right now you never had before. That's why it's called the Red Sea. Raisin labor, the priest washed after sacrifice. It was clear water till he washed, and it became red water with all the blood. Red Sea. You've seen all these types and shadows in Scripture. And they went through. And Egypt said, we'll follow. See, Satan's an idiot. I'm thankful he is. And he follows. And the Lord caused the water to come back and it destroyed all of the Egyptians. And they saw the chariots wash up on the shore. Every one of them destroyed. Every evidence of their captor was destroyed in the water. See, some people leave Egypt. God delivers them from Egypt when they repent and they realize, right? But they never go through the Red Sea. They don't go through the water. And so they're subject to captivity again. When you go through the water, he'll destroy that. And here's the amazing thing about this. If you studied in Scripture, Israel, Egypt never had authority over Israel again. Ever. The only way any Israelite would ever again be in bondage to Egypt is if the Israelite chose to go back to Egypt. But when they went through the Red Sea, the Lord said, Egypt will never hold my people captive again. If you've gone through the water and you're in bondage, it's simply because you chose to go back to Egypt. But the blood's still there. Stand with me this morning, would you please? And would you talk to the Lord right there where you are?